Alright, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. My voice this has is been two octaves since last week. <laughs> <laughs> this is where he's going to ask you for some change, and he is literally going to ask you for some change. Take it away, big man. <laughs> <laughs> so, I hate to go on the peg, but sometimes we need a wee bit of cash in these hard times. So, if you want to make a wee donation to our pockets so we can actually buy a coffee and get by, go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate where you can either join our Patreon or put some money in our fucking tip jar, right? Here, what 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 happened? What's that Patreon all about? What what happens when you join that? It's a long term commitment but we give you good shit and you get like access to episodes and you also get access to our access all area access 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 place. Oh, that sounds absolutely fucking pro. I love access. <laughs> uh, dear international listeners, I will give you my Edinburgh BBC accent now to translate. <laughs> what my colleagues were just advising you of is that if you go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate donate you can now uh, send us a small isolated sum of money rather than subscribe and make that commitment because some people are averse to commitments this is an easy transaction we shall not hold on to your details or pester you in future we will just continue to make this high quality product for your listening pleasure now we will return you to your uh, regularly scheduled programming which I believe is Jackie Bird and a bunch of dancers <laughs> he hearted up me door uh, so this uh, is I mean if you're first of all if you're listening to this and you've never heard Unsung Podcast before this is part two so you should go back and listen to part one of Faith No More this is the Unsung Podcast I'm Chris, that's Mark, that's David And this is the thing that we don't do often enough Which is to remind people exactly what this is And this is a show where we try and talk about Records that are unsung classics In their own way Under-recognised albums of big artists such as is the case this week or smaller artists that deserve more recognition and then occasionally we deviate that because frankly it's pretty fucking boring to do that every you know weekend week out Uh, so we just set ourselves with challenges such as the ABBA mixtape which will be coming up very soon uh, and will be what a 10 track playlist of what we consider to be the finest ABBA moments and that's that is uh, as a reward for the good behaviour of listeners out there that chose to subscribe because there's Mm -hmm. fucking thousands of you and Almost none of us contribute to the show. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking one star reviews. Um, but uh, yeah, so we are going to continue where we left off. We say last week. We're not going to pull the wool over your eyes here. It's been about three minutes for us. But um, we are going to do Faith No More from the period of 1995 onwards. Uh, go back and listen to episode one if you haven't. That covers the, the early days. 1979, this band started. Mental. But Covers the early days, covers the really big albums, especially The Real Thing and Angel Dust and Reasonable Depth. Uh, Has some hot takes, talks about shit quite a lot, but that's just what happens. So, taking taking us forward. In the year 1995, Faith No More brought out the album King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime, which is the album that I have nominated as an unsung classic. Mm -hmm. We will return to that in greater detail shortly. Uh, That (laughs) album... Was followed was, First of all It was followed by a tour With Limp Bizkit Which is Frankly fucking staggering um, But uh, That tour Accompanied Album of the year The modestly titled uh, What would that be Sixth Studio album By Faith No More Yes uh, Which was Released in 1997 
This one actually featured a guy called John Hudson on guitar who was Billy Gould's old roommate from way back in the day uh, and funnily enough Album of the Year got to number one in Australia like number one in the charts charts which is that's cool that's fucking mad eh? yeah mm-hmm. but um, the sales not so great uh, the sales figures for Album of the Year are actually very very similar to, uh, to King for a Day which is I mean a fraction of, of the two albums that came prior to that uh, the reasons for that will probably establish uh, shortly but it's it's much much darker. I mean, the faith no more you're dealing with now is just not the kind of funk rock neon frat boys jumping about uh, in day glow shorts and you know it's just nothing like that at all. The cover of the album album of the year alone looks like some sort of weird 1930s East European sort of interwar period reference. Something quite unsettling about it. The album actually has a sort of thread of that running through it. That's that's quite weird. A thread of sort of I would say fascism, but like sort of proto-fascism. Um, there's a lot the, the the paths of glory, for example, being the the, the titles of one of the tracks later on. Yeah, there's something quite sinister about it. Um, one of the standout tracks by a mile for me is a song called Strip Search, which is this dark, almost like electro thing that mm-hmm. they did. It's a really beautiful song, actually. I think it's a really, really good bit of music. It has an amazing video, um, a kind of concept piece of Mike Patton sort of getting up, getting dressed, setting out from his apartment, walking across fields, and it's clearly sort of a sort of slightly dystopian or authoritarian state that he's walking through. It looks like you know it's an Eastern European sort of thing, um, and again, it kind of contributes to that overall atmosphere. Uh, the video has a great twist in it. I wouldn't ruin it. You should watch it. It's a, a wonderful song. It's one of his best bo- vocal performances, I think, as well. The album doesn't really lend itself to singles very well, which perhaps explains its sort of, or partly explains some of its sort of disappointing performance. But it did have a single called Ashes to Ashes, which was the sort of advanced single on it. It's a fucking great tune. It's an really odd tune. Yeah. yeah, an odd, oddly written song, but mm. the vocal performance by Patton in it is like spectacular. He's at this, his peak this, here, I think. Vocally, I yeah. think he's at his peak. Aye. He really, really is. It's a big song. He's got a big voice. Actually, uh, did you ever see Faith No More on top of the pops for Ashes to Ashes? No, no. They've made some appearances on top of the pops over the years. Um, some of them are a little bit sort of tongue in cheek. The, the one they made with Ashes to Ashes has an interesting backstory though because Mike Borden couldn't be there. I think he was having a baby at the time. And so they, they recruited somebody called Robin Guy who was the drummer on the band Rachel Stamp. Reason, you let me bleed and I'm a dance floor I'm in love 
Rachel Stamp, who I remember for maybe the singer had blue hair. I think that's literally <laughs> the only thing I remember about them. They were a sort um, of glam rock sort of vibe from like London. Yeah. Exactly, they were kind of part of that Brit rock thing, but they were like the glam sort of bowling esque sort of side of the Brit rock thing. But Robin Guy was a big, big fan of Faith No More, and he got a call from I think his agent saying Faith No More are going to do Top of the Pops. Do you want to stand in for them? Um, he, you know, I got this story off a video where he's talking to Davina McCall. <laughs> I can't remember the show. It's like Closure or something. The name of the show. I don't even remember it. But it's where people go on TV to get closure on big moments from their past. And and Robin Guy goes on to get closure in this instant with Faith No More. <laughs> um, but long story short, he gets called in to replace Mike Borden. He's fucking stoked about it because a big Faith No More fan. He learns Ashes to Ashes on drums, and they're like, "Well, it doesn't matter. We just want you to wave your hands about." It's all it's backing tracked. Mike Mike's singing, that's it. But um he's like, Oh, it doesn't matter, you know, phoning all his friends and his mum, I'm playing Faith No More. And then they're like, Oh, we need you to wear a baby mask. <laughs> right? <laughs> they basically gave him this giant puffy faced mask. And the, the the joke was that their drummer Mike Borden's nickname is Puffy. He gets referenced in the lyrics as, as Puffy as well. Um so they was gonna wear a puffy mask to be Mike Mike Borden. Right. And he's like, Oh, really though, do I, do I have to plus it's gonna be difficult? And they were like, well, it doesn't matter if it's difficult, it doesn't matter if you hit the drums you just it's a backing track so he kind of he's trying to persuade them not to but eventually agrees to do it genuinely agrees to do it he goes out to play and they start playing the song and in, in his description he's like about 20 seconds 30 seconds into the song the elastic on one side of the mask snaps and the mask falls onto his drum so he was like as he's playing he's like shit do I try and refasten this or he just is like no I, I can't I can't and he just like bashes it off the drum kit to the side of the stage and keeps playing. At which point the band are playing, Mike Patton is apparently was drinking a glass of champagne and that was kind of quite in keeping with that period of Ash- when they're all suited up and stuff for Ashes to Ashes and he turns round and sees that Robin Guy has, has taken the mask off and they assume he's done it on purpose so Mike Patton just extends his middle finger to him and just swears right in his face live in TV and then there was actually like letters of complaint into like the newspapers and the BBC you know points of view remember that show Mm -hmm. about no wonder the teenagers today are so disrespectful when they see this kind of thing (laughs) happening on TV Uh, and this is all because Faith No More thought that Robin had ripped that off his face to be a wido and so he went on this TV show just to sort of clear the air uh, as it as it were, um, this is actually the song where my mum started crushing on Mike Patton. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, I, I'm I'm serious. My mum, like, I remember this is. I mean, this came out when I was sixteen, and I was I was playing it, and uh, my mum was like, "Put that song on again," and she got really into Faith No More. Obviously, not all of it, and certainly not the kind of nasal real thing stuff. But mm-hmm. she started to develop a real fondness for Mike Patton's voice and then when she saw him she was she was just awe about it awe about <laughs> it. F- f- frankly it was a little bit awkward um, but yeah she got really into Mike Patton she actually around about that time got really into Tool as well which was remar- kind of hip you know? <laughs> there you go um, but yeah I mean he's just he is so good in that song it's, it's hard not, not to be impressed Um, the album has some real fucking lowlights as well. There's a kind of lounge cabaret song called She Loves Me Not, which is fucking stinking. Yeah, not very good. There's a, a punk metal song on it called uh, Got That Feeling, which I, I really like, I like and which kind of 
yeah, it picks up where uh, some of the stuff in King for a Day left off. Got that And there's two really dense dark songs near the end, uh, 10 and 12, Passive Glory and Pristina. They're so oppressive and slow and doomy, like really doomy, really sinister. And they were effectively the last thing the band did. People thought maybe ever, because they broke up. Uh, was it the year after they broke up? Did they even mm-hmm. get as far as that? Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the way that this album ends, it's very pessimistic. It's very uneasy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do really like this album, albeit that's with the caveats that it, it's got a few stinkers on it. But some of the tracks are tremendous. Yeah. Um, I quite like Collision and Last Cup of Sorrow. I think those two songs are really good. Yeah, yeah like I mean, Last Cup of Sorrow. Collision, Collision's first tune, isn't it? Yeah. And that's it's a big start. And Last Cup of Sorrow was one of the other singles as well. Hmm. Um, an odd choice, maybe, but it got some pelters from reviewers at, when it came out. Yeah, man, there like were some it, really, really bad reviews. This <laughs> album and King for a Day, man, they get he gets so much flack for both of those records, and I think it's completely unfounded. And Pitchfork gave the album of the year two point four out of ten, which is fucking ridiculous, man. Yeah, Rolling Stone, get, one and a half out of five. Wow. Fast Forward Weekly, one out of five. It seems like a lot of these reviewers were comparing it to younger bands and like new metal and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the narrative just seemed to be that this was a band that had had their you know success in the 90s, used to be cool, and they were just old farts now. Even though it's, you know, ninety nine, ninety seven, It's 97, yeah, 97. When, it, yeah, when it came out, yeah. I mean, yeah, the what, turn, what the did Pitchfork say? Uh, album of the year leaves one feeling like uh, waking up and finding last night's shoes calmed on. <laughs> sure, the ride was fun while it lasted, but what remains is just plain icky and you definitely don't want it in your CD player. It's just a rubbish review, isn't it? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, the thing is as well, that album review must have been done retrospectively because Pitchfork was barely a glint in some wee keyboard warrior's eye mm-hmm. back, in, back in 1997. So some smart arse has decided to appraise it retrospectively and still come to their own conclusion. Whether or not you think it's a great record, it's uh, the panning that it seems to get is... I don't, I don't understand it, frankly. It's, I mean, fucking hell, even Album of the Year has fared and aged a hell of a lot better than most of the new metal contemporaries that surrounded it. Yeah. Well, that's um, it. I think I think like a lot of the folk that were reviewing it were going, "Oh, this isn't Limp Biscuit or this isn't Cold, cold Chamber, my yeah, god." Exactly. <laughs> oh, you know, these are like these old stuck in the muds that uh, you know, were doing funk and rap. They haven't down-tuned their guitars or anything. That happened, you know, it was over within four years and then Faith No More <laughs> have stood the test of time a yeah. lot more than yeah. you know, pretty Jeez much so. every new metal record. I, I, I just didn't know the I didn't know the reception was quite as bad as you guys are now exposing. I didn't realise that. I think this period of metal was really weird because unless you were a new metal band or doing something that was more trad, like in terms of 
thrash or death metal bands that were a bit alternative like this and like helmet and stuff were just they were seen as being dinosaurs even though they've stood the test of time far better than any of their, contem- any of their new metal contemporaries did mm-hmm. and they're just kind of tied to this idea of yeah these guys were definitely like the the proto new metal bands well they clearly weren't I mean just and in, in, try to be objective about it in the same way that grunge I use that advisedly but the interesting grunge swept away the kind of hair metal that was treading water in the early 90s you know that you know there's obviously hair metal in the 80s it was fun and exciting and even though I'm not a huge fan of it I can get that I can get why it was so popular but a lot of those bands like Poison and you know Ugly Kid Joe and all these fucking bands that were kicking around in the early 90s were just they were the tail end of that and to be fair, Faith No More Helmet, by this point, we're starting to really tread water. Jesus Lizard, treading water, arguably, at this point as well. You know, So a lot of the really edgy bands from the early 90s that were part of that fresh movement had only got maybe five or six years down the road, and then they were starting to sound a little bit redundant. So, I mean, I get why Faith No More split up after this as well. Because, yeah, they weren't, you weren't getting a fair, sh- fair shake because metal had got its revenge. Mm-hmm. This time, a big, stupid variation of metal came along and sort of got payback for grunge and alternative stuff sweeping away its predecessor uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, I so mean, what's interesting, like, uh, sorry, just one of those reviews of, of Album of the Year said, thanks for the music, Faith No More don't need to be, shouldn't be thought of as a one-hit wonder band, but they've done all they can. And then that reminded me, actually, like, it's interesting that from a certain mainstream perspective, some people think of Faith No More as a one-hit wonder band, which That's, is fucking mad. <laughs> yeah, that is bizarre. Um, yeah, I mean, I get. I, I guess if you go by the average programming on Kerrang TV, though, it sort of makes sense because Epic became the go-to song. Yeah, but I mean, even then, on like alternative music channels like that, they've still got like six or seven big hits. Um, yeah, I mean, e- even Easy is a song that, like, I mean, their version of Easy is debatably uh, more heavily played than any other now. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. But yeah, so this that wasn't actually their last album. Um 2009 I think mm-hmm. had word had kind of started to seep out they'd originally dismissed it and then they did reform and start doing a bunch of shows and, and tours which obviously surprised a lot of people there was no sign then of any new records coming out the the, the record uh, Sol Invictus didn't appear until 2015 yeah I mean uh, the first performance is a download festival and it was streamed on, on Download's website I, I, I watched it because I fucking love the band and you can actually watch it on YouTube, and they're really great. They open with a Peaches and Herb cover of uh, Reunited, which is fun. Uh, <coughs> and yeah, it's just crazy. They, they still sound they still sound so vital and so of the moment. There, a lot of the songs are playing alongside bands that are clearly very influenced by them. You know, um, mm-hmm. check it out if you haven't seen it. There was a bit of a gap. It's like they played a few shows over the next couple of years and then it sort of petered out. And then in 2014, they supported uh, Black Sabbath in Hyde Park Mm -hmm. and played two new songs. It turned out they were going to release an album the next year. Yeah, Sol Invictus. Hey, come on. 
It's a slightly problematic name. <laughs> I don't think for a minute that Faith No More meant it in a problematic sense, but it has its associations with white nationalism and the far right, especially in Europe. But um, it's not a great record. I mean, it's fine. I, I'm not. I don't think it's a bad record. I think it's. It sort of sounds like a collection of B sides from the album of the year era, though. Um, there's some ideas in it. There's like acoustic guitar and stuff that ties in with some of that period. Um, I think the song "Superhero" is probably the most interesting, and, and it's probably the most consistent with the previous standards that we'd set. Black Friday uh, on that record, track seven, has has a very tomahawk chorus. Bearing in mind that Mike Patton had been doing some pretty good stuff with tomahawk prior to that. And the vocals as well are the kind of double vocal effect is, is a lot more akin to the kind of tomahawk work. Uh, Motherfucker, which was their first single, uh, their first single back. It's the eighth track in the album, and I feel like it's almost a good idea. It's a bit. It's it's a bit too basic. I, I, I'm kind of. I'd kind of be surprised if Patton loves that Sol Invictus album. I feel it's like some Faith No More did, but I think I, I never really know what to make of Patton's decisions. Like I've said, because some of the bands have ended up touring, but it it doesn't seem to meet the standards they'd set. And regardless of what people said about Album of the Year, it's it's it's, it's a good record. Uh, it's got some very very good moments on it, and Faith No More had pretty high standards. Uh, from the Patton era onwards uh, I, I just don't think this really lives up to it it feels like a collection of rarities rather than an album mm-hmm. um, uh, have you have you spent any time with Sol Invictus? Yeah. it sort of slipped under it slipped under the radar for a lot even of Faith No More fans, I know that yeah I listened to it when it came out in 2015 um, I think it's fine, Superhero as you said is a good song, I quite like Separation Anxiety as well I think that's pretty cool and Rise, Rise of the Fall is pretty cool as well but yeah it's fine it's dead short as well it's the shortest album they've made by far only 39 minutes long uh, yeah, I kind of um, filed it away along with the new Refused record and the new... Did At The Drive-In do a new record? I can't yes, remember if they did. They did. Yeah, they did. And it's like, all right, these are bands that are good musicians and they know what they're good at, but all they've done is they've just completed a record because they want to tour. Mm-hmm. And they're not completing a record because they want to write tunes that'll change their lives or whatever. Yeah, it doesn't feel like there's they've got a vital thing bursting to get out of them. It feels no. like they've they've said, "Oh, we should write an album rather than we need to write an album." Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I listened to it when it came out, and it just I was like, "Well, no, I mean, I'll I'll just listen to their old stuff, thanks." <laughs> <laughs> so I so I guess that that kind of brings us up to date. 
Um, are they still and, uh, together officially? Oh, yeah, oh, actually, sure. Yeah, yeah they're they Oh yeah, of course they were. Do you so, play with corn, Dave? Well, apparently they were. <laughs> it, it was booked for last March, but they were supposed to play a show in LA with corn, system of a down, uh, helmet, and Russian sure. circles. <laughs> My God, man! Imagine, <laughs> ima- imagine your face at that show. Um, Just the, my God, the preopism. It I has been rescheduled week. to May twenty twenty one, but I mean that'll get rescheduled rescheduled again. But yeah, they're they're supposed I mean, to play here in June twenty twenty, and it's been rescheduled to June twenty twenty one because I've got a ticket. Yeah, <laughs> Dave, I could I could see you going to the states for that lineup. I'm not, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. not even joking, man. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so. Before before we actually dissect King for a Day, the, the one thing that we've shown, I think, is that they're not a band that deal brilliantly in subtlety early on. And I think their biggest moments, both commercially and perhaps even in the later days, uh, their most interesting moments are the least subtle. And by subtle, I mean, like, some of the songs are subtle. So the likes of Evidence on, on the album we're going to talk about, or Easy, you know, tracks like that actually are very unsubtle in the fact that they catch you so off guard or at Edge of the World as we spoke about as well because you've got a metal band doing this big pompey stadium funk rock and then they do this lounge track and I think Faith No More were kind of quite extrovert in that sense they're quite comical you know a bit larger than life at a lot of points and it's something that brought them a lot of commercial success as they got more nuanced they got less successful um but they, they they spent years and years developing basically no sound. They they spent years trying to shake any specific sound other than perhaps this meta notion of larger than life, which mm-hmm. became their thing. And I think nothing could be more informative of where they go in the album we're about to talk about. Because this is an album of a band that is determined not to have a sound, I think. Yeah, it's, it, it dabbles in the, ex- the extremities of everything they could do sonically. With an entirely new guitar player as well, which is a whole vibe in and of itself. Yeah, for the first time in a long time as well. Yeah, this is um, the first time that other three kind of core members of the band have played with a new guitarist. Um, Dave, you actually mentioned the cover earlier on about how it's so iconic. It's actually from a graphic novel called Flood by Eric Drucker. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really brilliant cover. Like it really stuck in my head from from the early days. It's just such a fucking brilliant, striking image. Um, I was a big fan of that. It did have really low sales uh, compared to the two albums prior, Fraction of Them. Um, It wasn't the first thing they released without Jim Martin. That was actually the tune that they did for the Judgment Night soundtrack with the Booyah Tribe. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Another another Body Murdered, I think it's called, which we've we've spoken about that uh, soundtrack at length. They really transition on this record. They continue an evolution, I think, where the, the, the silliness becomes, I think, more apparently self-aware. Um, I, I mentioned that earlier on, where in the earlier stages of Faith No More, when they say things like, it's so groovy, it's out of sight, I'm not entirely sure if that's ironic. Whereas by this point, I'm pretty confident that the, the things that seem OTT are definitely ironic. They've established that, and they just are better at telling the jokes, if that's if that's a kind of appropriate way to put it. Um, in this album, uh, the synths 
play a much much smaller role in particular uh, King for the Day for, for a lifetime a lot of songs um, there's not even any synth on it yeah now that obviously I, I take it you guys know the reason for that yeah yeah Roddy Bottom had lost his father around about this time um, he's also as we mentioned in the first episode he was very close to Courtney Love clearly Cobain killed himself in 94 he spent a lot of time with her around that period and also something which I think is not mentioned and probably plays a fairly large part let's be honest is the fact that he became addicted to heroin himself um, it does uh, decrease your productivity <laughs> it, see, it, it seems to unless your productivity is howling at people in the street and slumping in doorways uh, but um, I think this album sounds fucking terrific. It was recorded by Andy Wallace, a guy who's at this time, 1994-95, his stock was was peak. Mm-hmm. I mean, he'd, he'd exploded with, with the miracles that he worked on Nevermind, and ever since then he'd been in very high demand. And yeah, the, the drums in particular, I think in this record, sound terrific. Now, I mean, I'm going to take this up with you, and this is an issue I have with the album overall, I think the production is too good. I think it's like crystal clear, perfect, thick. And like, so on my first listen to this record, you know, since we decided we were going to do it, which is actually, you know, my first listen to it in about 12 years. It's like the production is like a big sort of jazz band, like Tower of Power or something. Like one of these, you know, really white jazz bands. The drums remind me of when you used to go to the pantomime uh, and like <laughs> the drummer down in the orchestra pit would have like the most amazing pearl kit and it would just sound fucking amazing and you know he was obviously an incredible session drummer and it was mm-hmm. you know mic'd up to hell it's got all the production but to me it just somehow loses a bit of character and then another thing that I guess runs through it slightly is I mean the guitars sound fucking massive on this much fatter a lot more low end most of the instruments are double tracked especially guitars and I think that weirdly enough leaves Mike's vocals actually sounding a little thin sometimes because he is I just I don't think he's double tracking his vocals or whatever he's just coming out with one fucking amazing performance and yeah he's got incredible technique and he's doing amazing melodies but the actual compared to how thick the guitars sound it just leaves him slightly flat sometimes. Yeah, it sounds weird saying that Mike Patton is overwhelmed by the production, but I just think his voice is overpowered by the rest mm. of the instruments on this sometimes. I mean, I, I, th- mm. I think it's an interesting point. I would say it's probably why this album feels more like an alternative rock album to me than a than a metal album. Yeah, it, 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 Sonically, it, it is thicker and dirtier and a bit more... Um, it doesn't have the pop production where, as you say, the vocal is really pushing right out of the mix the way that like Epic does. Um, but it, f- it sort of ages better as a result for me. It, f- it feels a bit more underground, a bit a bit raw. It's a, it's a better. We'll put it this way, right? Nevermind was a huge thing for Andy Wallace, right? But it was also overcooked, especially in the in the eyes of Kurt Cobain. I think this is a much better balance. And it does a lot of favours for a band that was a metal band but is not produced like a metal band on this. Mm. Um, So yeah, I mean, I take that on board, but I think in a weird way that might be part of what really switches me on to it. Well, yeah, that's another thing is that I think Faith No More are maybe a band that the album that you get into first is the one that defines the sound of them to you. Mm -hmm. So for me, I heard Everything Is Ruined when I was seven and Angel Dust became my go-to record. And therefore, when I listen to this, I'm like, 
oh no, guitars are too fat, specific things aren't conforming to what I think Faith No More sound like to me. Mm-hmm. And it's a very nostalgic and emotional connection that I have to that band. And therefore, if this was your first record that you got into, then everything else doesn't sound as good as this could be. See, before Mark jumps in, I would say, don't you think that's exactly what Faith No More wanted, though? See, just the way that they operate, that kind of, like, constantly throwing you curveball, like, track to track. Yeah, they're like, I, totally, they're, they, I, I totally respect it. I get what you're saying. You're right. It does often depend on your, your starting point. Um, and, yeah, I'm more of an alternative kid, so this appeals to me more. Uh, but I do think it's consistent with that gravitation they made away from, like, cheeseball funk to something much kind of cooler and more alternative and less immediately classifiable. Yeah. Mike Patton's on record is saying he prefers the kind of vocal mix where it is lower in the mix, just like another instrument. It just shouldn't be the forefront of, of the mix, mm-hmm. in his opinion, and th- that's definitely yeah. the case in this album. It's also, it's also very dry, though, which may be something that you're kind of picking up on as well. There's not a lot of mm. reverb on, on it. I can add a caveat there. It's not dry. The thing with Andy Wallace is he's such a fucking master of his craft that he's able to put reverbs in where you don't really, really hear the reverbs. I mean, it's that thing about mixing. Like, you can mix a reverb in so that it's really, really apparent, or you can actually really. The way that Andy Wallace mixes, like, have you heard those vocal tracks soloed? They're not dry. At all, but um, he's he's just he's just a bit of a fucking maestro. I, I don't always like what he does, but he's he's very high high level, you know. And I think this album just has his stamp all over it, like that ability, for better or worse, as as Dave's pointing it. This is an album that's aged one of the albums that's aged the best. I didn't have much time for this when I was younger, really, because I was never really into the kind of vibe of this. But I've grown to love it a lot more as I've grown older, and particularly the production of it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take a tour uh, Get out I mean, Faith No More do a, a really good job of starting records. Let, let, yes. Let's just make that really fucking clear. I mean, pretty much every record we mentioned, even the one after this with Collision, they're great at starting records. They don't they don't mess about. You know, just get you straight in, whether it's from out of nowhere as well. You know, just like, all right, it's a party. Let's get started. Mm-hmm. Great immediate start to it. It's the punkiest at this point in their career that yeah. they've ever sounded. The drumming on this, I mean, I'd never been a huge fan of Mike Borden, and looking back at his other stuff, I think it's fine. He's a very competent drummer, a very solid drummer who went on to do other stuff, but he was never outstanding. This is the album for me where Mike Borden actually does stuff that is properly, like, air drumming along with it, and and this tune is a great example of that. The rolls, the snare rolls in this song in particular, um, at this, the, just at the ends of bars and stuff are just fucking terrific. It's, it's, it's like lean and mean and it's a really ferocious song I think it's a fucking brilliant intro yeah. to the album and it really sets out the agenda well, you see straight away um, two things jump out to me whenever I hear this it's one that's definitely not Jim Martin playing guitar which means it's definitely yeah. a different kind yeah. of faith no more and two of Patton's voice has just went up a level and it was already pretty good before you know, the guitar in this actually sounds a lot closer to Dwayne Dennison, which is ironic given that he would go and he'd play with Tomahawk, but that kind of, you're right, it's not metal, 
it's got much more of a weird, obtuse sort of alternative like slant to it, and I think it just it just works so well with Mike Patton's his voice at this point in his career. It wouldn't have worked when he was singing through his nose, but it really works at this stage. Also um, worth noting that uh, there's no keys in this song, which is interesting, and it's also solely credited to Patton, which is only the second time he, he's credited as a sole writer on a Faith No More song. What was the other one? Uh, it was one on Angel Dust. Fuck, can't remember which one it is. I think it's uh, I think it's an RV maybe. I, I mean, I RV remember, would make sense. Yeah, he's yeah. only the sole credit on another one. Um, second tune, Ricochet. An odd choice for a single, but a big fucking tune for the band at this point as well. I, I don't quite know how they wrote this song. It's a really, really odd. Like from a from a songwriter's perspective, it's very strange. I can't imagine where they started and worked back or worked forward. Uh, it builds brilliantly. There's some great scales in it and some nice doubled. Vo- this does have some doubled yes, vocals in it. It does. Yeah, um, really cool. Although I think this is one that when the vocals aren't doubled, it's because he like he deliberately goes off key. And where that would have worked because of the slightly sort of thinner pop production on mm-hmm. the previous two records, because you've got such a fucking fat bass and fat guitar under it, you're like, oh, it just sounds like he's out of tune, but he's not out of tune, he's like doing a little flourish. If everything it, else was a bit lighter, th- then I think it would sound better. It it does have some sort of slightly wonky scales in it, this, this one kind of hidden beneath it. Um, it's the second tune in a row as well where they've done this really on-beat snare. You know, the snare is just landing flat and it, it's yeah. a very... It's a very confident thing, it's a ballsy thing to do, two songs in a row as well. Mm-hmm. There's a fantastic synth in the pre-chorus to this, like this is this is yeah. the, probably the best bit of synth on this album. Uh, and the lyrics as well, I think this shows like, a sophistication that, I mean lines like it's always funny until someone gets hurt and then it's just hilarious mm-hmm. became sort of like mantras for Faith No More fans. I mean there's even mm-hmm. like fan sites called that, you know, it's it's got some great sardonic lyricism in it. The big chunky riff Sorry. in the chorus of that song is just amazing. I love it so much. And mm-hmm. I, I love the I love the vocal mix in this, even when even when it's not double tracked. I'm a big fan of that song. I'm also a really big fan of the third track, Evidence. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Now this is something that we were talking about Edge of the World. This is that paved the way for all this sort of stuff. This sort of weird noirish wine bar thing. The video for Evidence is another really, really good one. Mike and uh, the whole band really in shirt and tie with a glass of wine kind of rolling the Rioja around in the wine glass, you know, pointing like a lounge singer. There's a lot of like I like might say Sinatra, there's it's it's much seedier than that. There's kind of Vegas sort of club vibe to it they're in a glass case getting watched it's, I think it's a fucking brilliant video it's really really in tune with the, the style of the song suave CD it really plays to I think what was emerging is Mike Patton's own personal brand do you know what I mean he was he, he, with the haircut the tash the hair gel back 
that sort of thing I think it really Mike Patton started to get a much stronger sense of identity and this album is where that was really kind of like congealed I think um, yeah really really big fan of that song yeah it's definitely jazzy and funky together which is cool bringing in the jazzy element I don't think that Jim Arm would not have done that on a guitar there's, no, there's a little, absolutely not there's a piano motif that the guitar follows in places that is pure like is the, the cheesiest 90s fucking like yeah. soft jazz cheese in the world man it sounds dated as hell now but I fucking love it as a result yeah like, I mean that's <laughs> something that we need to like when we're talking about jazz here we're not talking about fucking John Coltrane or Miles Davis we're talking about we're Michael talking about yeah exactly <laughs> Kenny Rogers <laughs> Kenny we're talking G. about Kenny, Kenny G. G yeah yeah absolutely I think the guitar performance in this song is amazing see the way he slides into notes It's, it's just that that, that that little thing It's just It's fucking tremendous I mean, Trace Bruins is a very Very good guitarist And Mr Bungle The, the, the variety the, the insanity of that group Requires such a diverse Skill set uh, and and it's totally on display and uh, on on this album and in this tune in particular, um, and t- as if to reinforce that, they follow it with the gentle art of making enemies. great track title when you're a teenager um, as, as our lyrics like don't you look so surprised happy birthday fuck yeah. <laughs> I mean it's just like the ultimate thing to get your teeth into as a 14 year old kid I fucking love it it's so silly yeah. I mean it is Faith No More embracing their absurd side totally, you know doing yeah. like big bold shapes you know you can um, tell with the the way that he pronounces the, 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 the sibilance in his voice the way he's singing a lot of the words the coming the way it's coming out of his mouth it just is so you can tell he's fucking around man it's, it's so cool this is my favourite yeah. Faith No More song this is my favourite of all time favorite, favorite oh really he's, mm-hmm. he, he's just he's, he, is, he is a fucking master of his craft at this point he really is yeah. like he's There's just so many great, great vocal performances in the course of this one track. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it's brilliant. And it's also quite proto-Tomahawk. It sort of really sets the scene for, for what he was going to do with Tomahawk, I think. Now, let's really have some fun here. Star AD, track five. What in the holy fuck was going through their heads when they? I mean, here, I want to be clear. I used to hate this fucking tune, <laughs> and 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 I I love it now. But I love it only because I engaged with it, and that again, that kind of quite conceptual. Like, this is stupid as fuck. Like, what were they doing? <laughs> going into this kind of big band seventies funk TV music? It's so tacky. It's so absurd, and it's so unnerving. You know, it's really there's something really perverse about it. It's like.
Like, why are you doing this at the fifth track of an, an album that you, you're, you've just had great success? Are you trying? Are you trying to ruin your career? It's it's mental. I think it's a little bit sociopathic, and it's fucking genius. Um, yeah, totally, man. <laughs> uh... Over time, it just makes so much sense. Um, like not because it's a great song. I mean, it's it's a fun song, but just because it's demented, it, the band do not give a fuck. And I think there's something absolutely fucking amazing about that. And also, can we just say the jazz breaking it? Uh, with the with the spoken word is just like holy shit, man. These guys are these guys are not right. Yeah, there's a, there's a middle eight which has got a tremolo on it, and it, it just sounds it does, yeah. fucking wobbly and whack as fuck. But it's amazing. <laughs> and the brass in this song is fucking outstanding. It's it's it's. I mean, I don't know what the fuck they were on. It, has but a, it was brilliant. It's got a guitar solo which is pure funk, like. the Prince buzzer because it could come out of a Prince song it's just totally yeah. funky man <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right it, the, the, the Prince buzzer is well deserved for that you're totally um, and again as if to underline how they are just not up for playing ball Cuckoo for Kaka mm-hmm. track 6 Shit lives forever. <laughs> like Shit lives forever, mate. <laughs> Ugly as sin, man. What a fucking hideous song. Like that riff at the start with it, the misanthropy of that with the synths and stuff is so. Well, that's like proto new metal bands like fucking, I don't know, Spineshank and Seven Dust used that riff five years later. It has a real gothy kind of like. I don't. I'm trying to think of a, a good example of a band like the church organ vibe. There's something almost like the progression of the chords is black metally, like, really, really dark. I've got it's like it's a big, it's a big cheesy eighties vamp keys. Like it's it's like something out of a horror film, you know, from the for the yep. mid twentieth century. The you can totally hear yeah. it in like uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show or something like that. You could like that's the vibe it kind of gives me in the choruses, and then it's got some fucking mental riffs and it's heavy as fucking play as well, man. <laughs> Pat Pat Patton's vocals <laughs> in it are top shelf. Honestly, he's obviously just he's done some good takes that sound like they've just been good takes. They don't sound comped. Mm-hmm. They sound just like he just he nailed it and they were like, We're keeping that, that's fucking brilliant. Um the vocals they're just they're unhinged. I also like the fact that the lyrics are self referential. Right up until the end of it was it like, take it from our drummer puff being good, it gets you stuff. Yeah. It's very theatrically evil, which I think probably explains it. It's Phantom of the Opera for like Melvin's fans or something like that. It absolutely is. In fact, even heavier than that, yeah. Um, Track seven Caralo Wador. (laughs) 
Patton uh, is a polyglot mm-hmm. anyway, mm-hmm. married to an Italian lady, speaks fluent Spanish as well. Don't know. It's peak Patton, this this song. It's, it's smoother than evidence. It's just ultra dank, weird, erotic, kind of drifting in and out of the English language. It's, I mean, fuck knows what mum was doing when she was sitting listening to this. I'd rather not know. <laughs> it's got a nice I mean, menace no, to it, man. It feels menacing. It does. It's it's menacing, but it's also, it's sort of romantic, mm-hmm. but we are like creepy underpinnings, I think. No other band could have done this and made it work. Like literally no other band at that time could have, could have gone in this direction because if it sounded like their catalogue, it wouldn't have had the same effect. Like appearing in the context of this album the way it does and being so well executed, it, it acquires a whole new significance that it wouldn't have had with a band that already sounded like this. Um, it's a great pacer, just even on a, a very practical level. And again, it's quite proto-Tomahawk, um, the track You Can't Win, which admittedly is a bit more aggressive, but it's got that same sort of like singing in foreign tongue suaveness, but with like predatory underpinnings. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, brilliant. And again... Oh hey, we did a mellow song, let's get nasty, ugly in the morning, track eight. It's fucking the, the vocals on this song are fucking demented. Rabbit. Like, rabbit. Feral. Well, I was like, going to say it's quite scatty, but I don't mean I don't mean it like that when we're talking about <laughs> yeah, Feral. Well, <laughs> it probably is that as well. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah, I mean this this is not a band looking to re-record the real thing at this point. If you just there's like all right, that's out the window. If you'd listened to Angel Dust and you were thinking, oh, maybe they just did the Dark album and they're going to get pop again, you mean fuck off, man. At this point, they're they're very much nailed like like, like pinned their colours to the mast. This is uncompromising in the extreme, really obtuse. It's got an insane meltdown at the end as well. Yeah. Like, just totally rips itself apart. Um, it's I, I think the vocals, again, in this are like Mike Patton. This is what made them famous. Not Not the song, but this level of eclecticism, but also ability. It's just fucking absolutely brilliant. Mm. Top shelf. And, hey, here we are. Track nine, Digging the Grave. Genuinely one of the best songs in the 1990s in my book. I think it's... Is that because it just sounds like Bad Religion? <laughs> Don't sound like Bad Religion, you fucking No, but heathen. this is like big power chords. It's big and cheesy, like man. Mike is just singing and... I, it sounds like pop punk like to me. It sounds like it could be Offspring or Bad Religion or something. I think you're a bit jaded. No, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just like... But let's turn to our resident expert, Mark. Does this sound like pop punk? Hello, I guess. But they, they, they were always in. They were always. <laughs> I mean, they were hardcore punks to begin with, you know. Um, but it doesn't really. 
strike me as being che- like I see a song as being big and cheesy, faithful, and more sounding. Like the, th- the thing is, the chord the chord changes in this are not pop punk chord changes. The chord changes in this are quite angular. It's much more alt rock. It's quite in keeping with the sort of like edgier nineties stuff. The sort of later kind of period Nirvana. Um, I would say. Again, to, to Mike Borden, this is a phenomenal drum performance in this, in terms of it's just so well written. It's not massively flashy. There's nothing on this that is that requires some sort of Meshuggah-esque level of drum mania. It's just so brilliantly written. It's, it's great. The drums are a hook on it. You know, you actually find yourself playing along with the flams. It's the, the 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 bridge bit, the breaking the bridge. It's just, it's terrific. Every single instrument on this song is pulling its weight, and it's just, I, th- I think it's such a great little concise uh, snapshot of everybody in this band fucking killing it. Like because that Patton's vocals in this are excellent, but they're not over the top. They fit they fit the song really really well, yeah. and I think it re- it really it's it's all of this explains why it worked so well as a single. Um, yeah, a huge song for me, even personally, but I just think a huge song generally. It's a fucking brilliant synopsis of this period of the kind of mid-90s. Yeah, it's totally a great song. And one of the things that I've written here again is it's got a really good middle eight, you know, when they kind of get a bit of tension and the relief and then the screaming going into the chorus is so cool, man. Yeah. Um, these guys do great middle eights, they always have done. They're one mm, of the few bands yeah. that get it right, I think. Um, <laughs> what the fuck? I, I absolutely fucking love track 10 but it has no right in the world to be on this album mm-hmm. Do you know, it's, a, it's a shit slow ballad but it's totally saved by Mike's chorus hook Strong. We're talking about take this bottle, yes. right? And even seeing the words take this bottle immediately take in my head. Bottle. Take this bottle. <laughs> I mean, that hook is that song. Everything else, yes. but like everything else is is supposed to be shit to be then saved by how good that is. The thing is that even the verse though that. I don't want to love it. like that. That whole thing. It's fucking. I mean, it's it's preposterous. It's absolutely fucking preposterous. It just it just doesn't make any fucking sense yet mm-hmm. retrospectively it makes total sense um I also think like the ending of this tune that that fucking fade out is genius because he just keeps going and if you turn up your stereo as it's fading you can hear that he actually starts to vary the vocal take you know he starts to fuck around but they obviously faded out and maybe the take they didn't like it beyond that point but the fade out actually is very very interesting mm-hmm. if you if you if you if you chase it your volume knob I, I recommend you do that actually it's really cool I think the synth strings are really good in this There's, there is some cool yep. synth strings on this whole record actually this was written by Billy Gould in his own which is quite interesting I think yeah. and there's is. there's more tremolo on this like or the oh, it's got but well, one of the things that makes so this is the, is the is the whammy yeah. the guitar whammy the it's one of the best examples of whammy in, in an alternative rock thing mm-hmm. uh, context um 
Track 11, King for a Day, the title track. It's probably sonically the closest to Sol Invictus, the the last album. The the, the strummed acoustic guitars, multi-tracked. Um, it, it's kind of like breezy and distinct. The piano is vital to this song because see if you can try if you listen to it and try and imagine the piano not being there, it's actually quite upbeat. But then the piano plays these really sinister, diminished chords underneath it that add all of that kind of like oppressive weirdness and discomfort. Mm-hmm. It really, it really comes from them. So like the, the the key work in this is is crucial. Um, it gets really, really big and mean. And then it obviously descends into that whisper of "Don't let me die with it." Was it "Don't let me die with that silly look in my eyes"? Mm-hmm. That tapering refrain at the end. I think it's terrific as well. The bass sound in uh, that song is amazing. By the way, it's got an actual bass solo almost in it, which yeah. is, is kind of cool. Also, this is I, the only song that's credited that's got bottom as a credit on it, and he's not credited in any other song on this album, which is quite interesting. Quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think this sounds like an end of an album. Track. I yeah, think it's it like does. Yeah. Sort of euphoric, euphoric sort of vibe <laughs> to it. That's also got a sort of dark undertone. But so, so here's actually it's an interesting point, right? Because I think with any other band, it could very well have been. Because we're on track eleven, and it's a good time to finish an album, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, interestingly enough, I think the next two tracks, "What a Day" and "The Last to Know," are probably the least essential tracks on the album. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't dislike them. By any means, I think "What a Day" probably sounds the closest to old Faith No More. It probably sounds the closest to like sort of real thing era Faith No More. It also just uses the same riff that they've used in Ricochet or Gentle Art as well, like mm-hmm. that sort of... Yeah, the delivery's quite different. It's a bit funkier, though. It's got more of that kind of, like, much earlier 90s sound to it. I think um, it sounds I do... like a new metal song. A wee bit, yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing about it, it's got Mike Patton starting to f- to really play with vocal effects processing. Mm-hmm. Did you hear that? Yeah. You know, how it became a big part of their sets where he'd have that little vocal effects unit, mm-hmm. and this was what he did with Tomahawk and a lot of his other projects. This is so that song really features that, um, and it's got a good it's got a good hook at the end. But it is probably the song I'd cut first if I was cutting, um, and the last to know I think is good. It's, it's sort of like an attempt to do euphoric, grand, sort of sweeping alt rock thing. It's weirdly optimistic, spacious, and has like a Soundgarden esque sort of jam section. Yeah, it's definitely end. got that sort of yeah post grunge yep. vibe. This would be a first one off for me. I just think the word I have is plodding. 
I, right. that's what I've, I've written stodgy um, this this is kind of one of these songs that Faith No More often fall into this trap is where they'll do like a mid-tempo number that shouldn't really be in the album and mm-hmm. yeah. most of their albums have that on it I think so the thing is right if Faith No More hadn't stopped at King for a Day and they'd finished with these two songs you'd be like a little bit let down mm-hmm. but for me they redeem it with the fucking absolute unadulterated genius that is just a man fucking hell man (laughs) track 14 this ridiculous gospel masterpiece that should never in a million years have ever fucking worked and honestly it's one of my favourite things mm-hmm. on it I think it, it, it's almost comical in its cheesiness I will not touch you I am just a man man was born to love though often he has sought like Icarus and it was totally joyous with the fucking layers of gospel singers Patton starting to riff on the vocals like really I mean I just think it's terrific and I kind of have a feeling that the, the only reason those two songs are on before it is to allow it to be there man I'd it's an inconsistent ending to the album because the album up until track 11 is fucking absolutely rock solid and then it sort of takes a lot of chances maybe unnecessary chances with these last three songs mm-hmm. but I do think the last one pays off in a big fucking way yeah like, I really I really, I love Justin Man Mark you were saying to me uh, you were texting me earlier on saying you couldn't get that fucking hook yes. out of your head it starts <laughs> off so innocuous and mellow and then the Patton's melodies kind of sort of quarrel almost and you're kind of thinking to yourself this sounds really weird this doesn't work and then the first chorus comes in and you're kind of like that sounds like a gospel chorus but not what the fuck's that all about and then it becomes a fucking gospel song what but what's also interesting is like he sounds like he's taking the piss and it's got this like sly sadness and slight of you know usual comic thing happening with him in the verse but he actually sounds genuine and emotional in the chorus I think he doesn't actually sound like he's taking the piss and that's what I think helps it as a closer because you're like oh this whole thing hasn't just been covered in irony they actually you know they are (laughs) kind of serious sometimes (laughs) yeah I I will say as well one of my favourite bits in that song is that little moment where the bass goes ba-doom doom ba-doom ba-doom it's like a fucking Seinfeld riff in the middle of this song man. I I just think it's fucking great Uh, look I, I totally concede, just in, in summary, that this album's 56 plus minutes, 56 and a half minutes, right? If we were contesting that it was too long, I would say that's potentially a fair criticism. And as I've said, I would take 12 and 13 out if I had to. Um, I do think, though, that this is a band that are... I mean, <laughs> they, they're just totally not precious about their sound. They're a band that are really determined to shake off any sort of like sense of like pigeonholing that could have possibly been going on with them. They found the whole trappings of like super rock stardom absurd. It didn't work for them on tour. It didn't work for them like professionally. Uh, It was probably quite restrictive in terms of the places that they wanted to go musically. Um, So I'm not really that surprised that they did stuff that was like 
difficult and awkward and maybe slightly ill-advised for mo- in, in the eyes of others and most others. And we're trying to be very sort of like, you know, we're trying to be very critically pragmatic here and say, well, this could have been a perfect album if you'd cut out 10 minutes of these unnecessary songs. This band didn't really give a shit about doing that, you know. Um, what they did do was go on like a fucking voyage of discovery with a new guitarist, a new producer... They didn't know what they were going to find, and they've said that in interviews, that one of the most exciting things about this record was they had no idea what they were going to produce. It was like a new era for them. Um, they'd been in this sort of fairly stable lineup for a decade, but minus Patton, you know, he was eight years, seven, eight years at this point. But they didn't know what was going to, t- what was going to come out, and it sounds like an album of discovery. It sounds like an album with no guardrails, where everybody's just like, take loads of fucking chances, let's see what we do. It should have failed. It should have been a fucking mess. It should have been a disaster. And honestly, 26 fucking years later, this album still totally works for me. And I don't mean ironically at all. I think it's fucking excellent. I think it's an excellent bit of music. I think it's it's got all the right mix of self-awareness and general sort of earnest sort of love of gospel and silliness. It's a fluke, um, but it's something that makes Faith No More all the more special for me. And it's the reason that I don't feel about them the way I feel about bands like Primus and that, where I'm like, right, okay, yeah, that's cool, whatever. Don't really want to spend that much time with it. This, to me, made Faith More something special and made Angel Dust better, actually, because I liked this so much. It made me more open to that album and even some parts of Real Thing and certainly uh, and certainly um, Album of the Year. So, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's fucking wonderful. I think it's horribly overlooked. Horribly overlooked. Even just on a song-by-song basis, you can put it up against alt-rock, punk metal of the era, and it's it's better, mm-hmm. to, you know, pound for, pound for pound. I mean, you say that, but I mean, it still sold one and a half million copies worldwide. Yeah. Which was like, what, a, a yeah, quarter, I mean, a, fi- it's, a, f- it's a fifth like, of the previous album? Yeah, it's a third of, you know, of the previous record, but compared to other bands of that time, it still sold more, sold more records than most, you know, alt-rock bands that are doing. Yeah, but it, it, it sold a lot of those records by virtue of the albums that came before it, though, and it like, it didn't have big singles in the same way that those albums did. I mean, albeit Digging the Grave is quite, quite fondly thought of, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I think the albums that came before it certainly contributed to probably at least half of those sales, man. Um, and it didn't sell a lot at the time at all. I think it sold about two hundred thousand in the UK, uh, in Europe, versus like a million, a million and a half for the one before it. So I mean, it was met with like confusion. Um, I think it's aged very, very well. That maybe explains why it's sort of had consistent sales over the years. I don't know. I can't really, I can't really summarize it. But I think it's in the context, subjectively. Compared to their other stuff, I, I completely stand by this as a nomination. I think it's, I think it's the, it's the template for for unsung for me anyway. Uh, for me, this is the zenith of Patton, Gould, and Borden songwriting prowess together. They're ta- like you said, Chris, they're taking chances. Uh, it shows their love for music in general, which is I think the reason why I, uh, I sort of changed with me so much is it's an album which yeah, does it's not afraid to take chances. That's definitely true, but it also shows they just love playing music and chucking a, like just a general love for different genres of music and try to make it all work it could have failed it could have quite easily failed it's, it's actually somewhat of a miracle that it didn't fail I think that maybe Trace Trace Bruance is part of the reason why it didn't fail because he's so accustomed to trying to mm-hmm. wrangle various different genres together in the yeah, one song absolutely yeah um, 
and Patton had obviously been away doing stuff with Mr Bungle so as a songwriter he was getting better at juggling those various different things mm. and also indulging his wackiest notions <laughs> Ex- but also like flexing his vocal muscles because he went away from singing this wah, 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 wah thing to doing all these different voices screaming like scatting doing gospel crooning bellowing he, he just did everything and that's what Mike Patton became famous for and it's it's hardly ever showcased any more comprehensively than it is in this album maybe maybe California by Mr Bungle showcases it as diversely maybe but certainly this would be the one I'd use if I was trying to demonstrate Ollie's range mm. well it goes without saying that it goes in for me I think it's a great I think you've made a good case for it and I think it's the best Faith No More album probably <laughs> so I don't even want to contest it's the best one. I, I understand that Dave's got a, a real, like, really into the previous ones, and I would totally concede that Angel Dust, the case could be made that Angel Dust is better. I think it's the definitely the most unsung one, though. Hands down, definitely. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to argue that this is unsung when it comes to Faith No More, and you can't really... I'm not going to nominate any of the others that aren't Angel Dust or the real thing, because I think this is the best of those, and mm. I don't think the real thing and Angel Dust are unsung. Um, cool. I guess my issue is just that, like when I first listened to this in the car, I I went, th- you know, I got to track ten or track eleven, and I was like, yeah, this is f- this is fine, I'm enjoying it, and then I just put on Angel Dust, and immediately I was like, fuck, this is better, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm totally aware of the fact that I totally rinsed the real thing in Angel Dust for years as a teenager. They were formative for me as a music fan, and. I'm coming to this, you know, dry, as it were. Um, I have warmed it, you know, since first going back to it a, a couple of weeks ago. And I and I really like where it stands in the arc, the narrative arc of the band and the fact that they don't give a fuck. Um, so, yeah, I, just personally, I think it's a 7 out of 10 compared to two 9 out of 10s that came before. But it's still a fucking really solid 7 out of 10 overall. All right, nice one. Um, that brings us to... The Nexus. The Nexus. This is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store for us? Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you, this is what you want. Uh, so who chose the Nexus last time? The Nexus was courtesy of Mr. Tommy Smith, and he chose Walt Whitman. Mark... You're a, you're a nerd. You want to tell us who Walt Whitman is? Walt, Walt Whitman is one of the most famous American poets of all time. <laughs> there you go. That's, that pretty much sums it up. There's your, there's your dinner. Right, so Faith No More was my choice, which means I take the lead. Uh, I really I really like this one. It's not it's not mega long, but it's, it's good. Faith No More features Mike Patton. Mike Patton was in the band Phantomass, who we didn't really... I don't think we mentioned them even once. Fucking brilliant. I'm sure we'll talk about them at some point in the future. Fatimas uh, brought an album called Director's Cut where they covered a whole bunch of music from films in some real fucking style as well. One of those was the theme from The Godfather. 
The Godfather was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's son, Roman Coppola, his debut film was named CQ. It came out in 2001. It's a comedy drama. Uh, and the, the official soundtrack for CQ was released on Emperor Norton Records. Um, just as a wee bit of side information, Emperor Norton Records also released soundtracks for Lost in Translation and The Virgin Suicides, as well as records by Air, Lady Tron, Felix the Housecat, and a whole load more. Okay. Emperor Norton Records is actually named after Joshua Abraham Norton, who was also known as Norton the First Emperor of the United States. Mm-hmm. All right. So Joshua Norton basically crowned himself Emperor of the United States from 1859 until his death in 1880. Um, he was born in Kent, actually, in the UK, but he moved to San Francisco in, I think, about 1848, 1849, when his parents died. And he actually, he was a speculator, financial speculator, investor. He lost a fortune uh, investing in Peruvian rice, uh, which, <laughs> which the story of that is in itself actually quite fascinating because it was to do with like a, some kind of rice blight in China. So he put loads of money into Peruvian rice thinking, I'll get rich. And then he didn't realise just quite how much rice they had. <laughs> anyway, when that happened, there was some sort of legal case where he fought to try and uh, avoid losing all his investment. He lost in court and he basically vanished off the radar. He was just seen as this burnt out investor that had lost all his cash. Well, he reappeared in 1859, declaring himself the emperor of the USA. I, I don't quite know how he was declaring himself that, but he made, a, he made a big thing of declaring himself as the emperor, right? And actually, he was from San Francisco. He lived in San Francisco and city residents began to kind of entertain this. He was quite an endearing figure. And so some of these like rules that he would pass, so he decreed that uh, there would be a twenty-five dollar fine for anyone that referred to San Francisco as Frisco, which I believe is still to this day quite a popular sort of bugbear amongst San Franciscans. Um, he also at one point called for the dissolution of Congress, no doubt because he was a bit uh, disaffected with his loss of money. Mm-hmm. Um, the city of San Francisco at one point awarded them custody of two famous stray dogs from the city, <laughs> one called Lazarus and the other called. Bummer. Um, <laughs> hell of a name. Uh, he was also in some ways quite an admir- admirable figure. Um, he appeared at public rallies to oppose uh, anti-Chinese rhetoric uh, of the likes of the Working Man's Party of California, which is quite a sort of like xenophobic workers' party at the time. Um, at one point, he eventually met uh, with Emperor Pedro II of Brazil. Uh, he was also the only... Uh, no, this is a bit of a diss, but he was the only US leader, inverted commas, ever formally recognised by uh, Kamehameha of Hawaii. Uh, that was mainly because he fucking hated the USA, so they decided to re- uh, recognise Emperor Norton. Uh, and he eventually he, he dropped dead in a street corner in San Francisco in 1880. So, Emperor Norton, during his time alive, repeatedly wrote letters to Queen Victoria of England uh, suggesting that they should get married to promote harmony between the UK and the (laughs) USA. (laughs) Needless to say, that never actually happened, right? Uh, Queen Victoria of England actually sent the first ever transatlantic message via Morse code in 1858 between herself and President James Buchanan. Uh, Morse code was invented by Samuel Morse and Samuel Morse featured in the 1940s series of famous Americans stamps alongside Walt Whitman. Hey. Uh, but by the way, Samuel Morse, I didn't realise this. Have you ever seen Gangs in New York? Yeah. You know, the nativist party in Gangs in New York, the whole Tammany Hall nativist party mm-hmm. thing. Uh-huh. Samuel Morse was part of the New York City nativist party. He was a, a vehement anti-Catholic campaigner, hated them, 
and famously refused to remove his hat in front of the Pope during a visit to New York City, which caused a lot of scandal. Mm-hmm. Apparently, a, a, apparently a real prick. There wow. you go. Uh, Mark, next, if you want. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just the fastest nexus ever, Mark. Could be, it's definitely in contention. <laughs> yeah, so, Trace Bruance is a guitar player on this record. He was also in Mr. Bungle with Mike Patton and Trevor Dunn. Trevor Dunn plays bass on an album by John Zorn called On Leaves of Grass, which is inspired by the poems of Walt Whitman. That is quick. Bosh. <laughs> also, Absolute bosh. Mike Patton released John's own stuff though, didn't yeah, he? On Epic Epic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, I'm pretty sure that Mike Patton's a Walt Whitman fan. He had a, he was Patton's been known as being quite a foodie. And there's an interview kicking about online where he's talking about like having friends over and like cooking for them and stuff like that and what wines he likes to drink and shit. Um and he speaks about Walt <laughs> and shit, by yeah. the way. Oh, that that and shit. Yeah. Even though you didn't mean it with Patton that has extra significance, right? Yeah. Um <laughs> but he speaks about Walt Whitman in that interview and he also has a degree in English lit, which in America there's like a ninety percent chance that Walt Whitman would feature in any degree. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Dave, you got one? Uh yeah, so I mean <sighs> I actually just quickly changed it there because I managed to fit in something a bit weird. But um, So I've got a little interview here, Faith No More getting interviewed on uh, UK MTV in 1995. And it's the MTV Coca-Cola report. (laughs) Uh, So obviously just some sort of random corporate little advert thing and they're just chatting shit. Uh, It's been like taped off VHS and put onto YouTube. Um... Coca-Cola is a large uh, drinks company based in Atlanta, (laughs) United States. And in 2012, they presented and produced a short 3D computer animated short film called The Polar Bears, which was produced by Ridley Scott, written by David Reynolds, uh, and it's based on Coca-Cola's iconic Polar Bears. Released on YouTube on 2012, and it's like... Oh, can I, can, I, can I stop you for two seconds, by the way? Did you know that Ridley Scott basically always... That like, he got famous doing adverts? Yeah. And mm. he, did, he did the Hovis advert. The yeah. famous Hovis yeah, yeah. advert of the kid pushing a bike up a hill. I only found that out like two weeks ago. It fucking blew my mind, man. <laughs> he did the famous <laughs> Apple one so, as well. The one, yeah, the uh, big 1984 one. Big 1984 Apple one with the Mac. Yeah. Sorry, man. Sorry, man. Sorry. That just, I had, I'm so glad we got to fucking shoehorn that fucking weird Ridley Scott <laughs> fact. No, well, that's quite all right. So, yeah, it's like a little seven-minute plot about a family of uh, polar bears to make you want to drink Coca-Cola. Some of the polar bears were voiced by... Uh, Megan Price, Jonathan Adams, Lynn Manuel, Miranda, and Army Hammer. Oh, all right. Now yeah, Army Hammer so is uh, a cannibal. <laughs> recently been in the news for uh, sending texts to a woman saying that he quite fancies eating her. So you know <laughs> that's interesting. Um, I think that's romantic. <laughs> <laughs> but Army Hammer appeared in The Man from Uncle, twenty uh, fifteen remake of the classic 60s sort of spy thriller tv series fucking loved the man from uncle when i was a kid by the way it was amazing mm-hmm. that a uh, film was written i believe or no executive produced by david dobkin the american director who's done 
uh, such varied delights as Shanghai Nights, Wedding Crashers, <laughs> and Eurovision Song Contest: The Story of Fire Saga. That's so bad, so so bad that film. <laughs> uh, David Dobkin went to high school with a couple of other uh, filmmakers, including Spike Jones, Jeff Tremaine. Uh, who they obviously met and chatted about um, Jackass and mm-hmm. they went to high school at Walt Whitman High School in Maryland Oh, nice! Uh, which is a public high school in Bethesda, Maryland and it is named in honour of Walt Whitman mm. Fantastic I don't want to be a pure prick but I think it's Marilyn Marilyn Marilyn, Marilyn. Marilyn. I th- I th- Yeah, well, I think, I th- I They've think made that is- up, it's Maryland Maryland yeah, chicken. Yeah, absolutely. They got it wrong. I agree. Um, cool. Job done. So, where does that leave us? What are we going to do next week? Well, it's surely fucking time for ABBA mixtape. ABBA fucking mixtape. It's got I mean, be this has been th- This has been three years in the making. Yeah. Three fucking years. He's paid for it, or at least 0.001% he has paid for it. <laughs> so the rest of you are getting it. You're like all those people that want to be the one not to get the vaccine but just get herd immunity aren't you <laughs> um okay uh, alright well great fucking ABBA see you next week flares glitter disco pants I'm gonna get that mad haircut I mean my hair's grown so I could just cut the fringe yeah. straight in please do and that I'd be laughing please do that yeah like Benny cool I mean that is gonna be some fun listening oh, yeah. I'm totally into that oh yeah what's, uh, what's Swedish for goodbye I don't know we'll find out Ikea <laughs> <laughs>